and welcome to What Do You Think? I'm Al. And I'm hungover. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, No, folks, I am not. I do not have a problem. He has a Uh, very serious problem. We're actually staging an intervention next week. We couldn't be bothered to do it today because there's just... Because we had to get the podcast out. Exactly. So next week, next week, we'll deal with your destructive habit of drinking way Mm -hmm. too much spiked kombucha. Oh, yes. And when do we talk about your uh, boba, boba tea addiction? Listen, I just can't function without boba tea. I just need that texture in my mm-hmm. mouth if I'm to no. wake up every day. Well, right. What you were supposed to say is I can quit any time. I just choose not to. I, I, I fully admit that I can't quit. I fully oh, admit okay. that I can't quit. And it's slowly destroying my insides. But anyway, oh. in any case. So uh, speaking of awesome, delicious uh, drinks from Asia. today Actually, yeah, that ties in. You're yeah. Right. We're, uh, we're reviewing Bullet Train, uh, starring Brad Pitt, choo, di- choo. directed by David uh, Leak Let of Deadpool Two, right? Um, well, he he was the co-director of the first John Wick. Okay. And uh, then it's actually pretty interesting. Um, he uh, so even though it's everyone knew he was the one, one of the co-directors he wasn't credited as director it was just chad uh his partner chad uh uh Stoletsky, i think that's oh, how you wow. pronounce it yeah so basically it became assumed after john wick became a giant success that oh uh they're going to be the the hot new action director duo mm-hmm. uh but no, he immediately went on to do his own thing. He did uh, Atomic Blonde in 2017 with Charlie's Theron. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he jumped on the next year to do uh, Deadpool 2. And then the year after that, he does uh, Hobbs and Shaw. And then obviously the world ended in 2020. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't come out with a new movie until uh, Bullet Train this year. Mm, okay. uh, so yeah, he pretty much started doing his own thing. Uh, he's he's become like Hollywood's go-to guy for like, like blockbuster action, but Mm -hmm. he's still not a known name to the mainstream yet. I would say. Uh, Not really, but he's going to be with, with that kind of a resume, he's going to get up there. Yeah. So, um, before he became a director in John wick, he started off as one of Keanu Reeves, uh, stunt doubles in, uh, the original matrix trilogy, him and Chad Stileski. And he was a stunt coordinator for a lot of a lot of big uh, blockbuster movies, hmm. uh, 300, uh, The Bourne Ultimatum, The Bourne Legacy. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, a lot of X-Men movies, Tron Legacy. Like, like he was basically the stunt guy uh, up until he directed John Wick. So he's pretty well respected in the industry. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be. But if I'm not mistaken, he also, for some movies, was the was a stunt double for Hugh Jackman and mm. Brad Pitt himself, who is in this movie. Yes, he was. Oh, he was a Brad Pitt's uh, stunt double in Fight Club. Oh, damn. Okay. Oh, yeah. So this guy, this guy is really well respected in the industry. And he's had he has a lot of good personal and professional relationships with a lot of A-listers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that Hollywood is like always go- going to him when they when they have a big blockbuster action movie idea that they want executed in the best way possible. Um, so, see, I'm going to ask you, uh, I think the you know, because like I said, David, like he ha- doesn't have a giant uh, film filmography as a director 
Um, I guess you can mention like what of the movies I've listed in, you know, John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool, Hobbs and Shaw, uh, you've kind of enjoyed. But I guess the better question to open this, I guess this review would be, uh, what's what's been what's been what's been a trend in action Hollywood action movies that you've enjoyed and a trend that you're kind of sick of. Okay, so for me, action movies, for some I feel like everyone has a genre of film that they become a little less interested in or they don't engage with as much. And there may be even multiple genres people just don't engage with as much. Um, so for me, action movies in general, and I think I mentioned this a little bit in our review of Top Gun, uh, Action movies have that thing where I'm just, I'm usually, it's, I don't think to, I'm not always running, running to go see them. So I, because of that, it's kind of, it, it is almost like a lot of the, the stere- there are a lot of action stereotypes that I'm just not into, which I would say the stereotypes of those, you know, would be not very well developed characters, not good stories, just ridiculous action shots that, are placed randomly, you know, everything you kind of get from the 80s, I guess. Um, But I would say what I like now is we're really starting to get a lot of action movies that have really, they're they're not trying to look like another action movie. We're finally really getting like more action movies that are trying to be their own thing and have their own look and feel to them even if there are sequels those at least those sequels you know stick with a certain look to their all their own it's not like oh how do i put this action movies had this trend of just copying off of the most recent popular action movie and that's what always annoyed me and other genres do this too i know that but action movies really clearly obviously just screamed their head off about doing this I mean, famously, like the moment uh, The Matrix comes out, suddenly for a few years, every movie, lo- every action movie looks like The Matrix. Um, then you have the Bourne trilogy and other Bourne movies that came out after that. And then for a hot minute, action movies were trying to like, look like those. Um, you also had Mission Impossible, where everyone, everything was trying to look like a Mission Impossible movie. Um, so I just got really annoyed that these movies were kind of just picking, trying to be what was the, and then actually, yeah, you got action movies that were trying to look like Marvel movies for a minute. So I like now that action movies are genuinely trying to look like whatever the director just wants it to be rather than copying the other thing or the most popular thing, if that makes any sense. Cool, cool, cool. And uh, kind of the first part of the original question uh, what uh, what of these movies directed by David Licht Licht Licht? Sorry, sir, if we're saying your name wrong. I don't yeah, know. what's uh, w- w- which one of these movies have have you enjoyed? So Bu- okay. Bullet Train, you know, we're reviewing that. So we're everything. Reviewing, I won't but, go into that. Yeah. So before that, which one was the one that you've been like, oh, I really enjoyed this one, or or your favorite, I guess. So it's between it was John Wick, Atomic Blonde, and oh, Hobbs and Shaw and Deadpool Two. Okay, so for me, it's John Wick, without a doubt, of those. Uh, John Wick, it just, A, what it started, and I understand he was the co-director on it, but it started such an amazing franchise of 
also really well shot action movies. Uh, although f- notably, noticeably, John Wick, the first John Wick, looks significantly different than the other ones that have come out. The, and the other ones actually look more like themselves than they do the first one. But that's there's various reasons for that, I guess. Um, but of those, yeah, without a doubt, John Wick is the most is is the best of those. After that, I'd say Atomic Blonde, then Deadpool two, then Hobbs and Shaw. Okay, so um, for me, me personally. I would say what David Licht and Chad Skeletsky brought to the table when they when they directed John Wick was that they really like made a Hollywood movie, even though, you know, John, the first John Wick wasn't that expensive to make. It was a kind of a mid budget mm-hmm. thing, but uh, they brought into Hollywood. They brought back or I don't know if it was ever here in Hollywood, but they definitely finally in 2014 brought to Hollywood an action movie that had incredibly well choreographed action and more importantly uh cinematography that didn't obscure what we were looking at when they were fighting Mm. um you know a lot of like mid-tier action movies that were coming out before john wick they you know it was always they were following the born trilogy formula which was like get really close and personal and shake that camera as much as you can so we can hide in the edits now Make no mistake, I have a lot of reverence for the original Bourne trilogy. It, it's some of the best action movies out there. And quite frankly, uh, I think it's it's Paul Greengrass at his best. That being said, um, you know, you have to admit that you had films like everything from Taken 2 onward. And in fact, most of most of any action movie that had Liam Neeson in uh, most movies that had Jason Statham in. Like anytime there was a fight scene or an action scene, it's just shake that camera up. And uh, when John Wick popped into the scene, that was the first thing everyone noticed is like, oh, my gosh, these fights are brutal and we can see them. The camera mm-hmm. is zooming out. And that, that was that was something that Hollywood sorely needed after mm-hmm. the good, I would say, eight to ten years we had of just shaky cam fights. Uh, now, um, in terms of. The film of his that I, I, I like the most, I would have to say, yeah, the first John Wick is is the most refreshing because it was just it was so different and so unique at the time. Different in the sense of how it was shot and choreographed and unique in the terms of story was like that. It just had really, really good world building. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that's such an underrated aspect of the John Wick movies is that. Boy, is that world really, really well realized. It's ridiculous, but it's really mm. well realized. Um, so yeah, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed Hobbs and Shaw. I think it's one of the Fast and Furious movies I can bring myself to rewatch. That wow. and probably Fast Five. Okay. Uh, I can bring myself to rewatch everything else. It just gets so ridiculous. Uh, Deadpool two, I'm lukewarm towards. I didn't think it was bad like a lot of other people did. But nothing about it was as as fresh as the first one. Um, I actually do think, because famously, uh, Tim Miller was supposed to direct Deadpool 2, but him and Ryan Reynolds had a falling out over whether Deadpool should remain grounded or go bigger and badder, which is what Ryan Reynolds wanted. And I feel like if they had followed Tim Miller's vision of going, you know, still staying kind of small and gritty, I feel it would have had a better Deadpool movie. Mm-hmm. At least that's my opinion. Um, Atomic Blonde. Uh, my, my problem with Atomic Blonde was really the story. 
Like it, everyone's so unlikable in that movie. The fight scenes are good, but like no one in that movie, except for uh, Sofia Batella's character, who who isn't even good. She's just really naive. Everyone else just kind of bothered me, you know. And mm. I could not stand um, uh, uh, the Scottish actor, Professor X. Um, Last, oh. Last King of Scotland. Yeah. Um, um, oh, gosh. I can't I know him. who you're talking. James McAvoy. James McAvoy. I just could not stand James McAvoy in that movie. Like, really? I just, yeah, I just could not stand him. I thought Charlize Theron was fine. I thought her accent wasn't that good, but I thought she was fine. I, and, and I get why. Like, like, I will say this. The film gives a great explanation why her accent sucks. <laughs> and that was something I That's did appreciate. True. But in any case, in any case... Um, yeah, but you I, really, I'm just surprised you like Deadpool two more than Atomic Blonde. That's shocking to me. No, Not I, that I hated Deadpool. Okay, too, just... Deadpool two, like the the chasm between Atomic Blonde and Deadpool two is very small. Mm. Deadpool two ekes it out because Ryan Reynolds is so charismatic. It's actually hilarious how charismatic that sucker can be. Uh, but in any case, I yeah, I think again, I appreciate appreciate that. With John Wick, David Lake has pretty much made action or, or has kind of raised the bar on action so that like action directors ch just can't all be like, guys, we're just going to zoom in really close and do a lot of shaky cam to hide like the mediocre choreography we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate him for doing that. Uh, but there isn't he, before like all his past films, he hasn't made a film that I've been like. This is one of the, this is a game changer outside of John Wick. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, let's uh, let's how about you and me watch the trailer for for Bullet Train and then we'll get to talking about it. Absolutely. Let's do it. In the Hi, there's a gun. On. Shh, it's the quiet car. Gotta use your small inside voice in here, son. There's a gun. Talk to me. I am ready. You are getting the new and improved me. Because if you put peace out in the world, you get peace back. I think you might be forgetting what you do for a living. Take the gun. Every job I do, somebody dies. I'm not that guy anymore. Some conflicts require a gun. Hey, this is nice. Okay, what am I snatching and or grabbing? A briefcase. You said you wanted simple for your first job back. Doesn't get simpler. You stab me? We ruin your life the way you ruin mine. Dude, I don't even know you. There's nothing simple about this job. Something else going on here. Yeah, I'm not the only one on this train looking for this case. Evan, mm. where's the briefcase? Oh, it's not shit. 
It was just there. We are right on schedule. Everything that's ever happened to you. This is gonna sting, bitch! Oh. Has led you here. Fate. That's a shit deal. Oh, no, thank you. You know what? Do you have um, anything sparkling? That's the one. Thank you. Domo arigato. Sure you want to talk this out? Not particularly, no. Uh, okay. Exclusively in movie theaters. All right. Very good trailer. Very, very good trailer. One of the... One of the better trailers that we were forced to see because you know there was that like that there was like a time of the year where we were just seeing the same like five trailers over and over again god that was that's there i there is no hell until you experience that kind of hell yeah (laughs) where where you're like for what was it Uh, it was like a five week span yeah like we 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 started coming later and later to show times too because we're like we're just missing shit we've seen it's fine yeah like like there was like a five week span early on when we started this podcast where every movie, it was always bullet train Elvis and, um, don't worry, darling. And, don't worry, uh, darling. And, uh, well, don't worry, darling is the one that's always showing up everywhere, but yeah. that's coming out like next month. So that'll, that'll be over soon. Once you go to a movie theater every weekend, you start seeing like, Oh, these trailers are starting to fucking annoy me. Yeah, even um, the good ones. Even like, even the good ones. Like Elvis was great, not the amount of fucking times we saw it. Jesus. Oh, yeah. That I think that one was the one that got that trailer got to me the most. Yeah. Because I'm just like, oh my god, we get it. He's Elvis. And then we saw the movie and really liked it. But that's. Oh yeah, one. we really really liked it. All right. Uh. So um. See, before I ask for your thoughts, Jessica, because you know we were talking more kind of about the state of action movies in Hollywood and the movies of David Lecht's career. Mm-hmm. We didn't really get a chance to, t- chance to talk about bullet train. So uh, in researching this movie for this review, you know what I found out that was very surprising. What? This was a novel. Really? When was yeah. this book written? Uh, this was okay. So uh, for those non weaves out there, I believe this is what was known as a light novel. Basically, they're like, although don't quote me on that, but so basically in Japan, um, you have the, 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 okay. So in Japan, you have these novels, right? And like in between each chapter, there's like, uh, there's like artwork, you know, uh, manga artwork, you know, or the manga style artwork between each chapters that you know show the characters doing something it's usually a scene from the movie or just portraits of them so it's it's like a novel with 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 manga characters in to keep you interested to keep reading right mm, okay. those are light novels uh, now bullet train isn't officially a light novel light novel cuz it didn't have uh it didn't have those like drawings mm. but it was originally called uh, Maria Beetle it was written by Kotaro Saka, who is a light novelist. Um, and he he basically does a lot of dark comedies and a lot of thrillers. Uh, the Let's see. Uh, Maria Beetle came out in 2021. Oh, 
Okay, well. But, okay, so it looks like that when that when that novel came out, the uh, screenwriter for Bullet Train, Zach Olkowitz, he basically he basically got himself he basically wrote a screenplay based on it, got Sony to buy the rights to it, and they made this movie. Uh, so yeah, but it was basically a, a thriller hitman version of Murder on the Orient Express, and it, it apparently did so well in Japan that you know uh, the screenwriter of Bullet Train noticed it and was like, "Hey, Sony, you should probably get these rights, and I'm going to write a killer script." Now, speaking of the screenwriter Zach Olkowitz, he's a very new on the scene. He uh, he started out co-producing Lights Out in 2016, mm-hmm. and his first credited screenplay was the second fear street movie that came out last summer oh, okay yeah and bullet train is his is his second uh produced script and he has a third one in post production called the last voyage of the Dedimeter. uh yeah it's uh directed by wait is this who i think this is it's directed by the guy who did troll hunter and the autopsy of jane doe oh okay i'm very that's I'm excited now. So the last voyage of the Dedimeter is about what happened to the crew that was transporting Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ooh, okay. uh, it has That's David. Cool. It has David Das Malishane, who people might know as Podot Man. It has Corey Hawkins, uh, Liam Cunningham from Game of Thrones. Uh, this looks like it's going to be a pretty good movie. That's going to be really cool. And I'm it's, down with that. I never got a chance to see uh, the second Fear Street. Fear Street seventeen. 17- or 1978 but i heard, everyone tells me that's the scariest one and and the title for the best of the three it has the one it's the one that has um the redhead from from stranger things sadie sinkin okay you know but in any case so th- this guy's on the rise this guy is on the rise he has two well-received movies under his belt and he his third movie is is in, looks like it's in good hands mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the backstory of Bullet Train. Um, so see, you tell me, uh, what did you think of Bullet Train? What were you, what were your thoughts? So, uh, uh, having, you know, been a few days since, a couple days since we last, since we saw it, I was very, when I'm, I was very intrigued to see what, what was going to happen here. Because the trailer makes this thing look absolutely insane, and the kept the thing I kept wondering was, when are they gonna drop the hat? Like, when is this movie gonna screw up and be dumb? And I, actually, see, let me hold you right there. We forgot to do something very, very important. We uh, forgot to tell our 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 listeners what exactly Bullet Train is about. Oh, so, Jesus. in in a very very fast way possible, sure. Bullet Train stars Brad Pitt as a as a uh, operative. He doesn't like using the word assassin. He's like a mm-hmm. operative. He's like a he's like a like a like an like kind of like a mercenary type dude who yeah. who's been out of the game for some time to take some time for himself. And mm-hmm. his first big job back is to is to steal a briefcase that's currently inside a bullet train, right? That's his job. In, that's going from Tokyo to Kyoto. Kyoto, Kyoto. yeah. Now, uh, what he doesn't realize is that there are a bunch of mercenaries, assassins, operators, uh, mobsters of all stripes who are also on this bullet train mm-hmm. and want to have something to do and want the, the suitcase for their own purposes. 
and things go crazy. So that's that's as quick a log line I can give you. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so continue, see. Sorry for the interjection. No, it's, it's fair. It's fair. Yeah. So I'm watching this thing, and let me be clear: the trailer has had me excited. I was very, I was excited about it, but I was ready for the fact that it was gonna disappoint in some way. Like there was gonna be something that didn't work. And the re- a good example of this is. Uh, I got the same feeling I got when the trailer for Bad Times at the El Royale, is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay, when the trailer for a film called Bad Times at the El Royale came out, where it just was this big ensemble cast and something, it was going to be absolutely crazy, all off the wall nuts, and I was really excited for it because it had just, it just seemed like such a strange mystery with so much else going on there, and it ended up dropping the ball in the third act, in in my opinion. Like I was I was down with it up until the third act, and then I just let go because it it tried to be clever when it was really just being convoluted, or it tried to make things bigger when they really weren't that big at the end. Um, it it just didn't work. So I was waiting for that moment where it's like, oh, it's about to do some big picture stuff, or it's about to try to be a bit a bigger try to be bigger than it actually is and it was going to keel over in its own weight and I kind of thought it's like okay I liked part of it but that's but I wasn't going to enjoy it turns out this movie was all those things but I loved it like it went absolutely crazy it ramped things up it was ridiculous it was 100% nuts but it takes you along from like step by step, building up, getting crazier, so that by the time you're, when when basically you're watching the shark jump, like in the plot, and you're cheering it on like a goddamn dolphin show, you're like hell yeah, this is awesome, and you're totally on board with all of its insanity, uh, and the 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 reason why is because it just managed to keep you going in this very consistent way and I think the only reason why I was able to do that was because the amount of callbacks this movie had and what I mean by that is where it would reference something you saw earlier the sheer amount of callbacks this movie has was I'm sure a movie has had more but I feel like this had the most callbacks I've ever seen and what you genuinely thought was just a little like random quip or joke had a purpose even a minor one later on and the fact that it pulled all of those together in a nice little bow granted a bow that's like made out of like i don't even know what just every possible like things that you shouldn't tie a bow into basically the fact that it tied it all into a nice little bow at the end even though the ending is crazy too you accept it fully so that's what i'm getting the heart at though is that it's just it's an insane ride, but but I loved it. It was absolutely a a, a, a total blast. You know, see, uh, when you mentioned that the fir- when you saw this trailer for the first time, that your thoughts immediately went to Bad Times at El Royale. You know what movie I went to when I was seeing this trailer? What? Uh, Hotel Artemis. You know what? Okay. I can yeah. understand that. Yeah. I, it, um, I mean, because it's so uh, 
so even though you know Brad Pitt is very obviously the lead, this movie is very much an ensemble piece. Mm -hmm. uh, much like Hotel Artemis, where um, Jodie Foster's the lead, but it really is like a like a, an ensemble piece. And the yeah. thing was, was that the trailer for Hotel Artemis, it was like uh, uh, underground black market hotel for like these hitmen, mobsters and bank robbers. And they're all stuck inside the hotel as um, uh, a, a mob is coming. Yeah, as a as a mob boss with his lackeys are trying to break in, and things are going to go crazy. And there's right? like a protest happening that's turning into like an actual yeah, mob. It was like so. yeah, it was like a riot, right? A riot, yeah. It was a riot. And the and the mob boss who's trying to get in is played by Jeff Goldblum. But oh, yeah. um, but the thing is, Hotel Artemis was that it had it had a good setup, and then it literally had no idea what to do with them. It was mostly just people talking. Right. Yeah. And and then it ends with like people leaving the, the the hospital and that's it. And I was like, this is such a this is such a fizz, this movie fizzled out so badly mm. that even though, you know, I had movie pass at the time, I was still like, well, that was a waste of a movie pass movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I was not. I was not. I was not happy with that movie. And when I saw this trailer for Bullet Train, that was the first thing I was like, ooh, this is an ensemble piece. Like everyone's a dangerous hitman, mercenary, or operator. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably going to be good like fight scenes, but this movie is not going to handle escalation well, and it's not going to handle characterization well because uh, ensemble movies. The biggest problem you have with ensemble movies is that if you don't know how to do it. And trust me, there are not a lot of good filmmakers most, out there who know how to do it. Most ensemble movies fail. At the end of the day. Because, That's why it's a stereotype. Because they have no idea what to focus on. No <laughs> idea whatsoever. The only filmmaker who was consistently able to do ensemble pieces well was... Um, what was the name of the guy who directed MASH? Um, oh, yeah. And he also... Yes. Um, and he did Nashville? He did Nashville. Yes. He famously was able to pull that off. Um, I just watched MASH for the first time, too. Recently. Uh, that um, one, that won the Oscar for best uh, for best song. Really? Yeah, and uh, Keith Carradine, who you remember as one of the soldiers from from the Duel, the Duelists. Yes, he, I do. Uh, Robert Altman is the director I'm thinking of. There we so go. So Robert Altman's really the only guy who can who can do who did ensembles well every time he did one because that was his bread and butter. But mm -hmm. again. So my biggest thing was like, okay, it's not going to balance the characters well and it's going to fizzle out like Hotel Artemis did and how, like you say, how Bad Times at El Royale did. Mm -hmm. Just buckled under their own weight, just couldn't couldn't and, handle the big names. Yeah. And, and actually, Jay, our friend Jay, who was who saw this with us, he made a good point beforehand that he was worried because he, he said it's usually not a great sign if they're like really advertising all the big actors that are in it. And you can bet Art or you can bet uh, Bullet Train was doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and imagine my surprise as I'm watching this, and the film does what you would think most ensemble pieces would know how to do is that, even though there's a bunch of characters, have your focus on a good, on a good two to three of them. Have them be your your primary focus, mm -hmm. and then everyone else is just like is like. Everyone else is there to move the story along. Yes, they should be developed. They should be treated like actual characters. But the heart of your movie are these two to three characters. 
if nope. in many ways you're kind of creating a pyramid it's like two to three characters and then there's like two to three below each of those characters so exactly exactly yeah um that that way you're like okay who are the characters that we need to focus on because they're the heart of this movie so many ensemble pieces never do that because you know they can never decide like well who's because even though it's an ensemble you're like who's the 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 heart of the story who's who's leading this story who who's the person who is going through all the character development and who's the person who's like prohibiting that character development and who's the person who's the person who like motivates change in the other characters you know these things are important and even though you have a movie with a bunch of speaking roles you should never forget that and i feel a lot of movies forget that mm -hmm. um so a it it did ensemble very very well uh there are three character four characters really who are the heart and soul of this movie it's uh brad pitt's ladybug it's mm -hmm. uh joey king's prince and it's Aaron Taylor Johnson's and Brian Terry Henry's Tangerine and Lemon. These four characters are the heart and soul of the movie, right? These four characters are who, like, 75% of the focus of the movie is on them. It's always on them. It's always because the main conflict is the main conflict is between Brad Pitt and Tangerine, Tangerine and Lemon and Ladybug. They're fighting over. So first of all, Tangerine and Lemon are oh, yeah. a team. Well, that's another thing we need to emphasize. They all have code names. They're yeah, they all have code names. Real names. Yeah. Um, so like different, either. Yeah, they all, they're, they're different things. Yeah. So, so Brad Pitt steals a briefcase from Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry, and the back and forth over the briefcase is really what moves the plot forward for them. That's like the main plot, and everyone else who comes in, they're coming in, kind of kind of still following that that same uh through line for for those three characters except uh, for prince who's the only one that is aware of prince prince situation. is on a parallel b plot yeah and, and sometimes those plots intersect throughout the movie mm -hmm. what makes this what makes this so well done is the fact that the movie never goes like okay well now here's a third plot here's a fourth plot here's a fifth plot here, here's a curveball we're throwing to you. No, these two plots are going parallel and sometimes they intersect. Sometimes they don't, but, and the movie is very, is very aware of what should be priority when they should, when they should add something that'll have the audience question what they saw before. And when they need to, again, re cross the streams again, the movie is very mm -hmm. clear about that. And that happens because Zach Olkowitz really, really knows who, who the audience needs to focus on and when they should sprinkle in the craziness, the, the zany characters that come in later and never ever makes a character overstay their welcome either through their presence or through their personality. So listen, this guy is only, this guy has two films under his belt now. He's about to have a, he's about to have a third. He's a guy I'm going to be watching because, mm -hmm. you know, I've heard, I've heard nothing you know, Fear Street didn't look like something I'd be into, but I've had many, many friends and acquaintances tell me, oh, the second one is is the best of the three. It's so scary, so well done. So I and didn't even know, I had really not heard much about Fear Street. Uh, one of my roommates um, watched it and said it was pretty good, but I, I'm having, knowing that the, the bullet train guy was responsible for one of them is going to make me look into that. Yeah, and yeah, and you know, 
ensembles are always hard to write to structure and he structures it perfectly um so there's that now like i kind of alluded to earlier david leck has never made a movie that's blown me away either action wise or story wise mm -hmm. i can confidently say that bullet train is my, currently my favorite movie that he has directed so in no small part because you so know you like bullet train more and so you like bullet train more than um john wick yes and i'll, I'll tell you why one um bullet train you know john wick for for understandable reasons john wick's a little slow in the first act i mean it has to be mm -hmm. uh, i'll hold nothing against it for that it's just what I really, really liked about Bullet Train, and something you'll notice as as we continue doing reviews, I really enjoy a movie that hits the ground running. You mm -hmm. know? I, I really do. I really do. It's it's this my biases. It's kind of something I I always enjoy. And my seeing. bias is kind of the opposite. I usually prefer when a movie takes its time initially. Yeah. But again, this movie no doubt hit the ground running and works. Because it's the type of movie that needs to hit the ground running, mm -hmm. you know? So, so this movie hits the ground running, you know, we're given like maybe two minutes of a setup for one of the characters, one of the satellite characters. And then we hit the ground running with uh, Brad Pitt's character getting onto the bullet train. Uh, mm -hmm. That, that I like that. I like that we immediately get into conflict, like in the first five minutes of the film. Uh, so, so stuff like that. I, I always appreciate. Um, I would say outside of John Wick, this is the most interesting lit movie that uh, David Licht has directed. I know a lot of people like love the the colors that you see in Atomic Blonde. But, I do, I do. But you know, you you gotta admit that there were also scenes where it was just a bunch of gray because they were in the they were in uh, East Berlin, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's this is definitely of of all his action movies. This is the best. The cinematography is the best in this one. Yeah, That's, or it's it's the most nothing. colorful, right? Oh yeah, it's the most colorful, and it's there's a vibe to this movie that I just really gelled with, like really really well. Well, one thing they did, which was kind of cool, is it goes from the, the landscape out because you're going from Tokyo to Kyoto, so the landscape outside you notice gets it gets. So there's, it gets from, it goes urban, colorful, urban to rural. Yeah, it goes from blue to pre predominantly blue, dark blue colors to predominantly bright orange because the sun's rising in Kyoto, mm -hmm. which which is which is a little which is subtle, but it's a subtlety I appreciate it. Where where you see the gradient of color shift, you know, that's always mm -hmm. something that's appealing to the eye. Um, something else I, I quite enjoyed, and this kind of goes back to the writing and something that you mentioned, C, was that Zach Olkowitz does a lot of like what you call uh, gun on the mantle, like at least five different times, at least. Oh, I, I swear it was. OK, maybe it was just five, but it felt like it, more. He, he does a lot. And we're not talking about the times, because one thing this movie does is it shows different perspectives and will like very much announce that it's doing that. Um, I'm because I'm not just talking about those times. I'm also talking about when like just something they use like comes back into play. Yeah. Later as well. So, so yeah, essentially uh, there's at least three very, very obvious setups, very obvious where you're like, 
the camera's lingering on something and you're like, okay, this is gonna this is gonna be a setup for a payoff somewhere in the third act. Those are very obvious, right? And the film makes no no attempt to to hide it, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have ones that are really subtle that if you watch it again, you're like, oh, they were setting up for this, or oh, this I didn't even realize this was set up to be a payoff somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Now, with the obvious setups that this movie does, the payoff is in a way you don't expect. Where, where we get one very, very specific setup. In fact, it's the first one of the film. Where immediately as the film goes along, you're like, okay, this is going to be used to do this. And in the end, it, it's just used to, to make a joke. To make a, a throwaway joke. And it's hilarious. You're like, oh, that's so funny. You know, you, you were thinking, oh, this was going to be set up for a, uh, for a big moment in the third act. Or a big problem for a character in the third act. And instead, it's it's used as a as a as an extended joke, which I found very funny. And then there were some where you're like, oh, this is being used to develop character. There's this little element of the film that's used to develop Brian Tyree Henry's character that becomes a payoff for uh, for uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson's character. And I really, really appreciated that. Um, now, back to the directing. Something else I really enjoyed was that. Uh, well, actually, not with the directing, with the editing. This film has such snappy editing, you know, it, that it this has almost Edgar Wright level editing rhythm. Did, would you agree with that, C? It's 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 it has a rhythm similar to Baby Driver in a lot of ways. And actually, much like Baby Driver, it edits to certain music at times. Yes, it ed well. it edits to certain music, and it edits in a way to accentuate a joke. Mm -hmm. which I, I quite enjoyed. There, there's a whole montage. That's actually, I almost forgot. That's actually another thing. Um, this movie, and it's kind of clear in, a little bit in the trailer, this movie is actually really funny. That's one like shocking thing. And, like, and it's not a like lot just kind of funny. It's really, really funny. And, it, and the humor is accentuated by the editing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a montage about counting down the number of victims a couple of characters have. And it's just so funny. Because after every kill, it, it after every kill, it cuts to them counting down, looking straight at the camera, counting down, yep. and it's it's just hilarious because they're like arguing about like no, it was this many people we killed, no, it was this many people we killed, and they're just counting down, and when one of the characters is proven right at their number, they're smug, they're like look at the camera, like see what I tell you, and <laughs> it, it's it's hilarious. Uh, there's a, there's a scene that cuts to a close up of Brad Pitt when he's being attacked and he just makes the most hilarious eyes wide and just like terrified face that you just can't help but giggle at. Um, I would say the, the best humor comes from the personal interpersonal, like dialogue between, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Terry Henry. They're, they're, they're able to add so much so much allusion to their history together with their dialogue you know mm -hmm. they like they like say oh uh, I I think uh, like for instance there's there's this whole recurring gag about Thomas the tank engine with uh, Brian Terry Henry's character that like every time Aaron Taylor Johnson rolls his eyes when Thomas the tank engine is mentioned, you just see that, oh, I've heard this a million and one times before. Mm -hmm. And he, he sells the exasperation so well that you can't help but laugh, right? Yeah. Um, no, like, so for those that aren't, who don't listen to Hollywood trades or, or don't read Hollywood trades like we do, 
Uh, you may not realize this, but uh, first of all, they're making the Craven the Hunter movie, and Aaron Taylor Johnson's going to play Craven the Hunter. And he's going to do a great job. And the reason he was cast in Craven the Hunter was because of the test screenings done on Bullet Train. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Sony executives wow. were so impressed with Aaron Taylor Johnson in Bullet Train that they immediately, they didn't even audition him. They just offered him the role. It says, hey, we love what you did on Bullet Train. We're looking for something similar for Craven the Hunter. Do you want to do it? And he accepted. And now that's what he's currently shooting right now. Wow. Um, by the way, I need to add, I won't say who, because it's obvious. there's a lot of big actors in this movie, but this movie has one of the best cameos of a certain actor. Actually, two great cameos, but there's one particular cameo that's amazing. And what I hope is it starts a trend of this actor having a similar type of cameo in these kinds of, in a variety of genres. Because this actor had a very similar cameo in another movie that was like completely unrelated to what he would normally do. And I absolutely love that they included it. And I hope it becomes like a, a trend for this guy. Because it it's really funny. So, see, it's, it's actually really interesting you should mention that. So, um, you know, the trailer shows you a good number of the actors that are in this ensemble. But not all. But not all. Here's the surprising thing, though. Uh... The actors we're shown that are in this movie, when you watch the movie proper, it, it presents itself as as a as a surprise reveal. Mm -hmm. Where I'm like, this, this film was probably written and shot with, and it's only like a couple. It really is only two. Mm -hmm. There there are a couple of there are a couple of of roles that the way they're shot and presented, it's like, oh, this was supposed to be a big reveal, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing what happened was that after test screenings they were like actors or you know audiences were like well i i don't i didn't see the point in in making that a big reveal mm -hmm. and so two of the two of the roles pretty, pretty much get spoiled in the trailer and yep. but then there are there are other cameos that or actually there there are three roles that are spoiled in the trailer because they probably were like that the audience didn't really react to them as as like, oh, my God, so and so is in this movie. But they still kept some cameos that were like that did get the reaction of, oh, my God, so and so is in this movie. So mm -hmm. I, I appreciated that because sometimes it's exhausting when the film tries to be so secretive that it really can't show you anything about the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like that. They were like, OK, there are these three roles that don't need to be surprise reveals cameos. But there are a couple that should be surprise reveal cameos. And I think the movie is all that much better for it. Um, you know, uh, one of the I'm not going to say the name of the actress, but the movie when 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 uh, Brad Pitt's handler is finally revealed, the movie treats us like, oh, my God, look who who played the handler. Mm -hmm. And it's like her voice is so iconic that like. Outside of actually you see, I think no, most. No, I know, I know. I didn't pick it up. I didn't. But but most yes. people, the moment they heard her voice, it'd be like, oh, I know who that is. And I I did not. I, I well, that's the other thing is that. The, so okay, so technically there's three cameos. So that one I didn't know, and then the other one I was like, I know I'm supposed to know who that is, but I don't because everyone else is reacting a certain way. And then once you guys told me who that was, I was like, oh god damn it. Uh, but the well, one I'm thinking of is still 
I think the best of those. Books. No, no, no. That cameo you're thinking of is the best one by far. And I'm really, okay. I'm really, really glad that was never spoiled into trailers. But there, but you know, the handler and uh, the the big bad and one of the assassins. When you watch the movie, it's presented like a surprise cameo reveal. But the trailers spoil it probably because it was like people saw it and were like, like, what, wait, was that supposed to be a surprise? Really? Okay. And I, I'm glad they're like, okay, guys, this movie doesn't need to be filled with just surprise actor cameos. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are two really, really good ones that are still kept a surprise. And I appreciated that. Yeah. Um, so um, in terms of performances, I think the strongest ones are. Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Tyree Henry, because yeah. w- when you have someone to work off of, you know, you can just inform character so much just by reacting towards what another character said or does. Right. Mm-hmm. You can. So their characters feel like the most realized because they always have a scene partner. They always, always have a scene partner. Um, that being said, the lead played by Brad Pitt is also a very self-realized character it's just that but, he does he doesn't get uh he doesn't get a dedicated partner to 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 you know work off of because Well the other thing a lot of and Brad Pitt's great in this to be clear but a lot of his performance is just him reacting to how crazy this is he's the audience Yes so that's and that's at the end of the day that's not as difficult to do for an actor he's yeah. just like oh my god oh my god oh my yeah, god Yeah and but he and does it, bring a good amount of like his own character into it fortunately Yeah he does uh, that work Yeah uh so it's a plot point that he like always loses communication with his handler throughout the movie. It's a plot point. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and he's the, he's the character who they, even though we're focused on him the most, his job, like you said, his job is more to react to the craziness of all the assassins and react to the fact that he just cannot get off the damn bullet train. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like you said, that's very easy to do, but still Brad Pitt does it very, very well and I'm just happy that he, you know, after winning the Oscar for for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, Brad Pitt pretty much claim, said that, you know, oh, well, this is now the the part of my career where I'm just going to be a character supporting actor mm-hmm. for, until I retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, he gets this big, big lead in admittedly an ensemble piece the movie doesn't rest on his shoulder but he's still the lead and Mm -hmm. and you know watching this i'm like no brad pitt still has what it takes to be a lead he really does he's able to do it i mean he does supporting roles amazingly well obviously he won an oscar for one and i think you can see he likes it more yeah but i'm glad that you know he still has the chops to to be a to be a lead actor um you know crazy to think that this guy's about to turn 60 in a few days that's insane. It's also funny that you're like you're he like looks amazing for sixty. Dear yeah, Lord. but but he you still when you tell people oh Brad Pitt sixty you're like yeah I can see it, whereas Tom Cruise who's sixty they're like no he looks forty. Yeah. <laughs> so that is well no I th- okay Brad Pitt looks I think he looks fifty Brad Pitt looks fifty. I okay think. so Brad Pitt looks ten years younger whereas Tom Cruise looks twenty five years younger. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. That sounds about right. Um, you know, so uh, the the fourth lead, Joey King, she does a good job with what she's given. You know, she's mm-hmm. not in the film as much as Aaron Taylor Johnson, Brian Tyree Henry, and Brad Pitt, but mm-hmm. she's in there enough that the scenes with her in them, 
she's like the focus of those scenes. Mm. And you run the risk that if, if they're not a captivating presence, she also helps widen the scope of what's going on though. Exactly. Which is nice. She, yeah. her character really allows us to understand that, Oh, there's something bigger going on here and there's a bigger connection to all yeah. of this rather now, than it just being a bunch of random events that happen to be coinciding with one another. Yeah. So her primary scene partner is Andrew Koji as Kimura or the father as he's labeled in the film. Something else this film does really well, just an aside is that every character has a label, right? Brad Pitt is Ladybug, Joey King is Prince, Aaron Taylor Johnson's Tangerine, Brian Jerry Henry's Lemon, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so Andrew Koji, who is an up-and-coming actor, well, not up-and-coming, he pretty much, if, let's see, he pretty much, he's been working, like, since the late 2000s, but he came into prominence in America with uh, the TV show Warrior, where I think he's oh, okay. like, he, I, I think he's one of the leads. Mm-hmm. And after Warrior, he he was in that god awful Snake Eyes movie as Storm Shadow, and mm-hmm. but this movie, you know, he's not in the movie a lot. Well, he's in the movie a bit, mm-hmm. but he, you know, his scenes are never ones that ask for him to carry the scenes. They're usually they're carried by he. Hiroyuki Sanada, who plays his dad, or Joey King, who plays Prince. But he has such a presence amongst himself that I'm really interested to see, like, if he's going to make that that jump to film lead. Because I I think he has the chops for it. I I really enjoyed his... uh, I I really enjoyed what he brought to the table with a role that necessarily didn't ask for much. Um, You know, so outside of those, uh, those five, I mean, you got Hiroyuki Sanada as as Andrew Kochi's dad. He's in the he's not in the film as much as the the trailer would lead you to believe, but he has a key role in the third act that I personally thought was very well done. Now yeah, for every for everyone else who's in who's in this film, um they're not in there enough to really warrant us talking about them. I I can just safely say I never found a weak link in the cast. No, everyone pl- everyone played the, the role like they were supposed were to. were really good too. They 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 really, they, they didn't, they weren't acting. You know what it is that really helped? You have this situation in, and you, you make a good point. It's the lack of focus that a lot of these ensemble pieces had. So because of that, none of the, usually none of the actors act like the protagonist. They all act like they're a supporting role. Um, what's funny is in this movie, even the smallest role acted like they were the lead, which was really interesting. They they were all the protagonists because for them, they were the protagonist of what was going on for them. And I think the actors, I don't know if they consciously did this, but they all definitely, you know, portrayed it that way. Like when when certain characters die, it's like the they're genuinely shocked that they're dying. It's like, what I can't die. I'm the lead, but they're dying. Yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting, important factor. I, the best example of this for me was... Uh, the wolf and Zazie Beetz character who genuinely, they seemed shocked that they died when they did, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the, uh, the other thing that I, I think is worth mentioning about this film is the action choreography. Oh my Listen, God. It, it's very, very well done. Um, and that's to be expected. David Lecht is been a stunt coordinator for decades and like he really does make sure that when there's action choreography it 
it looks real, feels real, and has, and, and you know, it's it's not just window dressing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the I would assume the reason he took this film was to challenge himself to design action choreography within a relatively narrow space. Although, to be fair, some and you know, a lot of films do this where they make train train cars bigger on the inside than they could possibly be. You have right? to. You have to, you know? Um, they Famously, they did that with Snowpiercer. They've done that with every murder on the Orient Express adaptation ever made. Um, Any but, movie that takes place snakes on a plane. They made that plane huge. Exactly. Huge. Exactly. Um, the, flight plan, they made it massive. Although with flight plan, I remember, they didn't even like pretend to say it was a smaller plane. They said, this is the biggest plane ever designed. And it's like, they just did. Yeah. They just went with that. Having been on a bullet train, I can tell you that they're nowhere near that big on the inside. Even that, the first class. Yeah. That being said, though, you know, he does make good use of, of you know, of the shape of these things, which is like, you know, the they're, they're long, long corridors. He makes great use of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes great use of creating an action scene that you see in the trailer of, of basically fighting while sitting down in a quiet car. You know, there's these unique scenarios that he comes up in the bullet train that work really, really well. The one, in fact, and then he kind of adds to it by creating even stranger situations. Like this bullet train has a car dedicated to like a anime Pokemon character. Which the thing is, the reason the reason why they did that, I looked it up. You, I don't think you get it so much with a specific car in a train but you do have themed trains in japan that's a very big thing there yeah they really push they just turned it into an entire car whereas yeah. you know some you'll see some trains that have like these cute stickers but i don't i don't think i've ever seen a bullet train in japan have like just someone walking around in a mascot outfit is that I've a thing s- i i well i know japan loves mascots that they love that there's a whole Thing on that so i think they wanted to bring that tie that in in some way like because you know japan no i, I know a mascot they have their own mascot for every country in the world yeah yeah i do know that um, um i mean famously hello kitty is a thing because because japan loves anything kawaii is what they call it yeah kawaii, um cute. now now i don't know if they go so far as to have people in mascot outfits in a train but, you know, I, I mean, it, it wasn't distracting. In fact, that mascot's the source of a lot of funny jokes. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I can't really complain about that. Uh, I don't know about you, C. The only real critique I have of this movie, mm-hmm. it, it's just two. One is very tiny and minor. And the other one is kind of a critique I have just with Hollywood blockbuster movies in general. Okay. The first critique is that, uh, you know, the first act and a half of the movie, like, the the movie really tries to have the assassins fight in secret. You know that that the the other passengers on the bullet train don't realize what's going on, mm-hmm. and for the first act and a half, the movie does a good job, mm-hmm. and then. There comes a certain moment where it starts stretching suspension of disbelief. Like like they keep creating more collateral damage, they they keep breaking stuff. Like in fact, in the in the in the quiet car fight scene, 
it, it that's when the the suspension of disbelief just blows up because it's like it's like they're being loud they're hitting each other they're making a ruckus like like even if they're not like yelling in pain they're still like punching each other so hard that they that they make noise yeah, and, it's, and, and it's eventually, like when you see those videos on the planes where people start kicking and screaming. It's like, no, you'll notice that. Yeah, and there's only one character who points at them and goes, shh. But no one ever is like, wait, are those people fighting? In fact, during the fight, they cross the they they cross the aisle and go on the next on the next uh, pair of seats next to them, and nobody says anything. Mm-hmm. And eventually, after this point, they just fight and break shit everywhere and i'm like how the fuck is nobody saying anything like like the stewardess there's a there's a recurring stewardess who shows up every once in a while like literally walks into a room where like the the wall cabinets are broken there's like there's like trash and stuff all over the floor litter and stuff from the fight she doesn't pay attention to any she literally puts her hand into one of the broken wall cabinets to take out some snacks and i was like Really, a movie? Well, really? That's, and that's why. You, and one thing you mentioned to me earlier is you were con- because she's a pretty well-known actress in Japan. You were convinced- well. She, she's not. She's not a. She's not an actress in Japan. She's. Oh. She's actually a, a Canadian actress oh. who happens to speak Japanese. Okay, that is my fault. Um, but but she's she's in a she's in a very popular American TV show that just recently ended its third season. Yeah. So she. I initially, because I did notice that where she was like n- clearly not noticing very obvious things, and you pointed out that you were convinced she was gonna um, basically be, be involved, involved. Yeah. in some way. So yeah. it's like, oh, maybe that's why she's just pretending to not notice because she's involved. Yeah. But then you realize, no, she just genuinely was doing her job. Um, I think if if I have to suspend that disbelief for the the payout I got for the movie, I accept that. No, and listen, it the the thing was was that when a movie decides to create a rule for itself, right? And then halfway through the movie it throws away the rule because it just becomes too difficult to to work with it. That that bothers me just because it's like, well, you were following the rule very well for like the first half and then for the sake of action you're like okay sake of action sake of of just being able to move the story along you get rid of it it's like well then just don't have the rule in the first place you know Mm. um because at that point because here's the thing when you're telling a story especially through a visual medium right all the rules you set for yourself you're presenting in a visual way and subconsciously or consciously the audience is going to be like okay that's the rule uh if there's a if there's a movie where if there's a movie where a person can't fire a gun. You're going to show a series of images that lets the audience understand the character cannot fire the gun, right? Yes. And then if if in the middle of the movie you have him firing the gun with no consequence, the audience is going to be like, well, then what was the point of, of telling us that rule if you weren't going to follow it? And listen, I get it, you know. Something that might be clever in the first half just becomes a hindrance in the second half. But to me, that was just kind of the one thing was that by the end of the movie, uh, here's something that's actually equally as silly. By the end of the movie, it tries to reestablish that rule by saying, okay, there's nobody on this train that isn't involved in the the main plot. And to me, that was such a cheap cop out. Now, I know it, it might sound like, oh, he's really mad at the movie for doing this. I'm not. 
-hmm. It's just, it's just a very minor critique I have that it created a rule and then it threw that rule away and then it tries to bring it back. And it bothers me when movies do that. Now, the bigger problem I have with this movie, and it's not just with this movie, it's with most Hollywood blockbusters in the past five, maybe even 10 years. Okay. When the third act hits, Mm-hmm. It it just goes, no pun intended, off the rails. <laughs> it just goes off the rails, right? And, and here, here's the thing. Up until the third act, the movie maintains all the action, all the choreography, all the set pieces within inside the bullet train itself, right? And then the third act hits and it's like, let's it's like, Let's go crazy. Let's get nuts. But here's my thing, though, and this is what I'm saying, is because this movie, in a really good way, just stepped things up very carefully, very slowly, but ramping it up each time, getting faster, the craziness for me, it was, for me, I just accepted it because it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we need to keep these characters and you pull this one little moment so we accept that that character's going to do whatever needs to be done to get back on the train. That, that's where I think things got really crazy when that a person got off the train and had to get back on in, in, in frankly, an insane way. But because we had seen all this exaggerated action, we were ready for it. Our brains were... My brain was primed for it. Okay. So I didn't mind that as much at all. Okay, so that, that particular action sequence, I didn't mind. I thought, okay, this is a... Because even the trailer lets you know that it's them happen. them hanging out of the train, them hanging out of the train is is uh, is going to be in the movie. You're like, okay, that's that's the that that's going to be something that might be the ceiling of craziness of this movie, right? And as the movie goes along, for the for the most part, it maintains that that's going to be the ceiling of craziness. The thing that bothers me, and it, it's not just Bullet Train that does this, every big Hollywood blockbuster movie does this, is that by the time the third act hits, no, ma- no matter the scale of the movie, it just got to just just go crazy out there. It has to be as insane as possible. Now, now, and the thing that the the thing about Bullet Train is that. You can still do what happens in the movie and and literally not have it be that essentially everyone's now fighting while falling from the sky. Do you get what I'm saying? It, 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 it becomes because at that point, you know, the film is following pretty grounded physics. And then it's like, no, now we're in a Marvel movie. And here's the thing. I was attached enough to the characters that I didn't mind. And the little humorous beats that were happening in that sequence were still funny to me. But in the, my mind, I was like, well, it, it just went all crazy Marvel action set piece. And I don't think the movie had to do that. I really don't. You could because the stakes that are involved are relatively small stakes. And by relative, I mean, it's like stakes that are only important to the characters themselves. It's not like the world is ending or or the, the country's on the brink of war. It was literally like, nah, you fucked up my life. I'm going to fuck up yours or like. I'm just trying to get out of here, right? Mm-hmm. And instead, it, it basically does a set piece that would rival what I saw in The Gray Man, which is the Netflix movie starring Ryan Gosling and uh, Chris Evans. Yeah. 
And again, my big critique is that for some odd reason, it's become a trend in Hollywood that no matter what the scale, no matter what the stakes are, if we're investing more than 80 million in a movie, you bet your ass we want crazy, non-realistic physics, heavy CGI action set piece that basically, we're basically like the actors aren't in the frame anymore it's all like these cgi stunt doubles it, it it's it's baffling to me why all these movies are like i can at least understand why marvel and dc do it because these are literal super powered uh demigods right i can understand that but you know and it, it's crazy to me that like still the only big blockbuster to not do this yet is well not even them even the batman did something like this mm -hmm. um but at the very least like it mostly happens off screen with the batman john wick didn't really do this john not john really no john wick john wick didn't do this john wick doesn't do this because the selling point of john wick is to is to have keanu reeves kill people with his hands or with his guns mm -hmm. right so john wick and i'm very happy about that i mean the crazy, the crazy, the craziest John Wick has ever gone is that he's basically shooting a, a, a mini arm or like a small army of assassins. Uh, but he doesn't involve him like killing assassins while the whole building is tumbling down, you know, and, you know, he's got to go through broken glass and and there's a giant explosion. And now he's got to fly with a parachute. So, so Al, if I, if I may, if I may, here's the thing. I'm going to compare uh, two – there's there's now three action movies on a train that are in my psyche pretty well. Bullet Train, Snowpiercer, and Nonstop starring Liam Neeson. Now, all three have a similar kind of ending in a, in a lot of ways. Not exactly, or they have a similar big moment in all three. Now uh, – I would say you look at all three using that same huge moment and Snowpiercer is the most justified in using it, then Bullet Train, then Dead Last is nonstop. And you look at like the reasoning why for each one's because with Snowpiercer, they it is end times. So you can do end times level crap and you're and we're will accept it. Uh, Bullet Train Again, my reasoning has been, you know, oh, it put us on, it stepped it up slowly and we accepted the weight lab length. And then lastly, with nonstop, there's no way we accept that crazy moment in that movie, even though they, that's what they make it, that's what they make happen. And my whole point to this, all of this is, yes, you are right. Hollywood has this trend of saying, oh, once we reach a certain budget threshold, if it's an action movie, we have to go apeshit. Um, and I think that's due to Marvel being popular. They realized, oh, people want to see something crazy. So if we spend a certain amount of money, we have to do that. Um, so you make a very good point uh, of the overall system and where it doesn't work. But it can work at times in action movies. Let me ask you, let me ask you this, C. Sure. If, if the third act didn't go off the rails like it did, right, mm -hmm. where – a whole 
a whole town is kind of involved in the situation by the end. Sure. Like, like if it had just done like, oh, um, oh, um, like, like the now, like it ends with them in the middle of nowhere. Like, mm -hmm. like, like nothing crazy happened. The, the, the bullet train just ran out of juice and now they end up in the middle of nowhere. But all the fights that we see and all the kills that we see still happen. Would you be like, oh, the movie fizzled out? Or would you still be satisfied with how it resolved itself? Oh, I would certainly be satisfied. I'm not saying that it needed to have that crazy ending. But I just don't think that crazy ending hurt it. Because here's, here's, here's what I thought was going to happen at the end, truly. I thought it was going to be a John Wick level, like, hundreds of um, henchmen, let's just call them. Because that's what it's leading to. It's like like the crazy '88 scene in uh, Kill Bill. Yes, I thought it was gonna do that. That's what I thought it was gonna do. It's like we're gonna have a crazy '88 on a train, but it's gonna be the train's not moving anymore. Yeah, they're all trying to fight through that. I was expecting either that or train stops, they get out, and there's a crazy but calm fight on the train station. I was expecting one of those two things, and those would have been great, truly. Um. So I'm not saying we needed to have that. No. I'm simply saying that in other cases where it really doesn't work in a lot of action movies where they do these massive set pieces for no reason, hell, you know, nonstop really is the only answer I can think of it right now where it was truly 100% unnecessary, like where it, it caused detriment. This, in my mind, didn't cause detriment to the movie. It didn't ruin the movie. For, and I know you're not saying that either. I know mm -hmm. you're not saying it, it ruined the movie for you. But I think this movie allowed for either possibility to happen in the way it was shot. You know, getting the heart rate up throughout its movie, throughout the movie, made it so that I could accept the literally explosive ending that it had. It had. But if you didn't have that, I would have been perfectly satisfied. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, really and truly, it's only Top Gun Maverick that didn't go i mean here's the thing top gun ends with a with a mission they have to pull off and then people get left behind and then they come back or or, or they find a way to escape right mm -hmm. there is no like crazy in the air battle scene that would make like star wars blush right which mm -hmm. i feel like <laughs> a lesser writer would have allowed the studio to dictate that and we literally would have had like a like a like a like X wings versus Tie fighters in the air, but but Top Gun, right? You know what we, they would have done if they would? Can you imagine like they somehow fly their jet through a part of the base or some bullshit like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, something no, something that you're like, okay, we're just being as crazy as possible. Um, you know, again, for for me, for me personally, I just I wish Hollywood would stop going like when the third act it's got it's just got to be as crazy as possible it's got to be so crazy that even michael bay would be michael bay would look toned down and ironically he he still does it because he's michael bay but ambulance has one of the more toned down balls to the wall crazy third act of the movies we've reviewed this year and this that's true that, that that's something yeah that's shocking to say yeah. but and i like that you that you that you know you you mentioned this it's not enough to make me really, really mad at the movie. It's not. Yeah. Like like you said, 
it's just something I was like, oh, why does Hollywood include this? But, you know, the characterization is still well done. Everyone's still charming. The jokes still land. You know, it's it's and, you know, the kills are still gruesome. Mm -hmm. So so but so it's saying something that that my biggest critique is, oh, the third act devolves into the crazy CGI mess that most blockbusters have been doing these these past few years. But not enough for me to be like, and don't watch this movie. Oh fuck no! I I, I definitely think you should you should see this movie. How, how about you? See, do you have any critiques? I know I ranted for a bit, but do you have it's any okay. critiques? Um. So, I guess, uh, not so much a critique, but an interesting observation, and that is that. So, there. We, I am now noticing that certain filmmakers have decided that their reason for making a movie was Quentin Tarantino. Um, and you can tell in the way it's shot. And to circle back to the earlier in this episode, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale is very clearly, uh, and actually our, because uh, Jay was, I don't think Jay saw it with me, but it was he saw it shortly after, and he pointed out to me at the time. It's like, well, yeah, it's very clear that this director is a Tarantino fan, and he made a good point. And in this, it is so clear that this director loves Tarantino, because he, you just have to see it. You'll know what we mean. Just the certain dramatic shots of of the actors and certain over-exaggerated movements and things you wouldn't the, the way The way certain characters talk to each other is very Tarantino-esque. Yeah. Uh, the, the way the violence is presented is very, very, very Tarantino-esque. Oh, and the use of another... The, and I, I'm not... This, this part is not a criticism, but the use of another culture is extraordinarily Tarantino-esque. Yeah. Um, but what I'm saying is that I'm. It, it is interesting to observe. It's going to be interesting to observe over the next few. Years. I'd say over the next ten years. Let's just be wide. Ten years of younger directors and who inspired them. Because what you're going to find, it's not just going to be Tarantino. You're going to start seeing. Okay, Scorsese, Spielberg. You're already seeing Spielberg. You already uh, see Scorsese. Everything done by David O. Russell since The Fighter has been Scorsese. This is very true, but that's what I'm saying. It's like what you're gonna what you're gonna start seeing is Edgar Wright, Christopher Nolan. If we're not seeing it already, oh, we're um, gonna see Nolan at some point. Um, you're gonna see oh oh um, uh, Denny Villeneuve. You're gonna see that. Oh yeah, you're definitely gonna see Den Denny Villeneuve. You're gonna see um, Park Chang Wook, Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of, of we've like, seen Michael Bay for years. In other yeah, no, yeah. I'm thinking about the 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 directors that got noticed when we were growing up. Um, let's You're see. You see James Cameron. Well, no, you you already see James Cameron. This is true. You already see James. You you know who you're gonna see? You're gonna see you're gonna see more overt David Fincher. You're gonna see more overt Spike Lee. Yeah. And Spike yeah. Jones. Both yeah. Oh, more, yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah. going to see, um, oh, uh, PTA, PTA. You're going to see more. PT Anderson, yeah. You're going to see a lot of PT Anderson. Um, I would say the one that's going to be. Exciting to, I just want to wait. I, I'm waiting to see when someone starts to blend those because that will happen too. I, I think I think the one that's going to be the most obvious to notice is, is Wes Anderson, mm -hmm. Edgar Wright, 
and um and tarantino it's gonna be obvious well well tarantino's already out i'm talking so uh, Taran- like Tar- later on I see yeah tarantino is for like late gen x and very very early millennial right mm-hmm. which which david lank looks like he's uh looks like he's gen x um wow. but edgar edgar wright and wes anderson are going to be those two directors that were very much inspiring millennial filmmakers mm-hmm. um you know who else you're going to start to see but this is going to be later later on down the line you're going to start to see a lot of james gunn i i think mm-hmm. i think i think i think he has a unique enough style that when Gen Z starts getting hired to make movies, you're going to see a lot of James Gunn. Hmm. Um, but we're, we're already seeing Wes Anderson type stuff. It's just we're, Wes Anderson with not uh, symmetrical framing. Yeah. But with the same pastels. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know who else we'll see that millennial filmmakers are going to start homaging to a lot who? where we're going to start seeing a lot of, of, Oh shoot! What's his name? Um. Uh, I I cannot. Uh, Alfonso Cuarón. Yeah, you're gonna the see the that. the long the long the long oh. takes with a lot of crazy stuff happening in Hell, the frame. You're, we're gonna get the visuals of Del Toro any minute. We already kind of are. We we already kind of are. Yeah, but definitely we're gonna start seeing stuff from them. Um, and and you know what? Again, great artists steal like uh, Tarantino yeah. uh, paraphrased. This is this is. There's nothing wrong. It is. It is natural for this to happen. It's. Yeah. It's. Let's just say. Ins- well, let's just be nice and say inspiration. We'll just say inspiration. Put put it this way. Put it this way. Um, Tarantino is never going to make Bullet Train because he wants to make his own stuff. Mm-hmm. Spielberg, you hardly see do like like straight up Hollywood productions now. The closer mm-hmm. you're gonna get are these like, and I don't say this in the. You're, you're going to get these journeyman directors mm-hmm. who, who wear their influences on their sleeve. That's the closest you're going to get, right? Because yeah. once you get that auteur level status, you're not going to be making stuff like Bullet Train. You're going to be making like your what own, you wanna, your what own you want to make, right? Yeah. Like that, there's a reason why, um, there, there's a reason why, like, for a good long while, when J.J. Abrams didn't have the auteur status, and I would argue he still kind of doesn't. He goes back and forth. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why, like, okay, uh, Spielberg and Lucas would never do a, a Star Trek film now. The closest mm. you're going to get is J.J. Abrams. Yep. And there you go. And that's, I mean, my God, Super 8 was, uh, if, if I didn't, it, it was Close Encounters of the Super 8. My God. Yeah. But anyways. Uh, you know, Martin Scorsese probably has moved past making those like those like iconic charismatic mobster films that he was known for in the night early 90s mm-hmm. but guess who will david o russell yeah so so that's the closest you're gonna get and bullet train is like what if what if if quinn tarantino just straight up decided to do a hollywood picture like yeah. like like straight up no, nothing he wrote based on something else uh with a big budget with like a, a, a four quadrant film. What if Tarantino wanted to make a four quadrant film? Mm-hmm. Um, he never would because he's, he, he's an auteur. He wants to make something that appeals to, to him and therefore would appeal to his fans. But you know who would David Lecht and uh, Zach, uh, Zach Olkowitz, they would. Uh, so, and again, that's not a bad thing. People wear their hearts on their sleeves. You know, yeah. it's, it's just, again, the, those things that's like, like, um, what's a what's a film that's coming out re- recently or soonish? 
um uh it's like it um uh, i forgot the name of it but anyway in any case so uh see what uh what rating would you give this movie this is a flush a genuine solid flush um I was expect because I and I'll admit I, I'm in, I'm shocked that it is that for me because I was genuinely expecting to just say that this was a movie or a fun movie, but no, this was this was a flush. Really, it's it's it knows what it wants, it knows what it is, and it knows what it's given you, and you can't help but smile. Yeah, this oh, to and me. See this in theaters. Yeah, this to me is is a. Uh, this this to me is a Japanese flush. Uh, it it's you know it it's very something we didn't talk about, but it is a bit anime ish, a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I mean that more in aesthetics more than anything. Uh, but I love this movie. Watching it now, it isn't a fucks for me just because, you know, the third act I felt like, kind of it, it's like a very 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 like positive flush right. Mm-hmm. You know, I really enjoyed this movie. My only real critique was that it broke its rule and then tried to put it back in terms of people not noticing the fights or, mm-hmm. or, or civilians not noticing the fights. And then the third act just went way, way too crazy. But I didn't walk out going like, well, this disappointed me. No, I still think this is a movie you have to watch in theaters. Uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson and Brian Terry Henry are going to be the highlights of the film for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Uh, Brad Pitt has proved that yes, he can still be a leading man, even though he may not necessarily want to. Uh, there was never a joke or a running gag that I thought, "Ugh, this is getting old." There never was. I I always enjoyed it. I even the Thomas the Tank Engine stuff. I was always like, "Oh, this 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 doesn't stop being funny," and then it pays off at the end. You know, um, I think this is going to be a fun time for anybody who you know is just kind of like, "Well, I don't want to go see." I don't want to go see um, um, Thor again, mm-hmm. or I, I don't want to see whatever horror movies out right now. And I already saw Nope. Watch this; you're gonna have a fun time. Um, oh, yeah. No character outstays their welcome. And That's uh, true. yeah, no character outstays their welcome. And for those of you who might be worried about Brian Tyree Henry doing a British accent, it's not a bad one. The Charlie's. No, the Charlize Theron one in Atomic Blonde is significantly bad, more bad than Brian Terry Henry's. Brian Terry Henry's actually believable. Uh, and one other thing, for certain fans of a certain of a certain musician or a certain like <laughs> pop star, yeah. uh, uh, don't get your hopes up that they're going to be in the film for a for a big big while. Yeah, um, not gonna happen, folks. Not gonna happen. Um, so yeah, that's been our review of bullet train. Uh, thank you so much. Choo choo. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Al. I'm C. Later gators. Good night, everybody.